What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Yeah, parenting is a game and I am going to win it. I don't know who I'm playing against. I have no idea, but I'm going to win at it. The amount of harm I did to myself talking that way about what I should have been capable of or expect of myself. In hindsight, dear earlier Emily, I am sorry. Today me knows now that that was not very nice. I did not need to do that to myself. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, here we are at episode 149, in which I interview Emily Jankowski-Newton. Emily is a passionate perinatal mental health advocate and the director of the Climb Out of the Darkness program with Postpartum Support International. Attending a local Climb Out of the Darkness event helped connect Emily with other parents, find the help she needed, and was the beginning of something incredible. A combination of treatments including talk therapy, medication, and lifestyle changes helped her recover from postpartum anxiety, depression, and OCD. Now Emily works tirelessly raising awareness, building community, and connecting folks worldwide to life-changing perinatal mental health resources. Emily is also the co-host of the I Am One podcast, where PSI staff and volunteers reflect on their own lived experience during the perinatal period, which is pregnancy and postpartum. Emily was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of eight, but was told she would outgrow it. Spoiler alert, she did not. We talk about navigating ADHD and pregnancy and babies, as well as our individual experiences with perinatal depression and anxiety. We also talk about the experience of being neurodivergent parents to neurodivergent kids. If you struggled with the transition to being a parent or struggled with depression and anxiety with a baby or a young child, you are going to really appreciate this raw and deeply personal interview with Emily. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Gosh. Okay. So I have spoken on many, many episodes here and there about postpartum depression and kind of all of that, like after my diagnosis, looking back at like certain times of my life with this new lens. And it's been really, really eye-opening. And one of the biggest times has been dealing with babies and actually not talking that much about pregnancy too. So I'm really, really excited. I got a lot of questions about kind of the perinatal and postpartum, but I want to hear your diagnosis story first. So how long ago were you diagnosed and what was going on in your life at that time that led you to put two and two together? My diagnosis story has two parts actually. So I I was born in the very early 80s. And so I grew up, you know, going to school and 
the kids that were in the special ed classroom, that was a separate classroom. And now we don't do that because we realize that that's absurd and that's not how life is. But I was diagnosed when I was eight and I didn't know that that's what. Nobody told you. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And I wasn't medicated and I'd, I didn't get any accommodations or anything like that because I think like my parents were really worried about like the stigma that was going to go with that. So at some point they started telling me that I needed to take my time with tests. Like take your time. Don't work too fast. Check your answers. That was it. I was very hyperactive. I know I was diagnosed young because there was no masking the hyperactivity. Like I wasn't inattentive and daydreamy. I was like covered in dirt and running around with the boys who were also hyperactive. <laughs> but I was never medicated. And I was and I was also at the point at which I was sort of like being told that this was a thing or that like, you know, sometimes you move too quickly and you need to slow yourself down. I was told that I would outgrow it. Like, I don't, I don't know if, if anyone else that like was diagnosed in the eighties with any sort of like learning neuro spicy, anything was told they would outgrow it. Cause like no adult has ADHD, right? Yeah. That was the standard understand. I mean, that was the clinical understanding of ADHD back then was that you outgrew it. Exactly. Exactly. So I went to college and was like, these textbooks are really hard to read. And so at that point, my mom was like, let's see if you still have ADHD. And I was like, see if I what the what? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so wait, just to backtrack a little bit. So your was it your teacher who suggested it? Or like, did you go through a formal diagnosis process? Or was it the pediatrician who was just sort of like, yeah. Do you remember any of that? I did go through a very formal diagnosis process. Like it was like a lot of almost play therapy where they were like analyzing how I play and like watching how fast I jumped from thing to thing. But you don't know you're eight, right? You're probably just like, right. like I, I just thought we were hanging out. <laughs> okay. That's all. I just wanted to know if it was just sort of like your teacher had said like, yeah, she's got ADHD or was it more, it wasn't, did they actually go through all of that and. I think the teachers probably were like, uh, there's something happening here. And my parents were like, because my my younger brother also has ADHD, but his is inattentive. And so like, he's better at hiding it than I am. So like they, they were comparing these two kids and being like, there's a five year age gap, but like developmentally, sometimes they act like they're in the same place. Like I was five years older, but I was so impulsive and so hyperactive that like, there were there were differences there or similarities there, I guess. Okay, so let's fast forward to college. Yeah. So then, you know, I get on I get on medication. Yes, you didn't outgrow your ADHD. Surprise, surprise. Um <laughs> also you have it. <laughs> right. Like this is your life now. Although that that realization comes way later. We'll get there. So at that point I was it was like all about testing and and grades and doing well in school. And so when I then graduated and, and was working, I didn't need it. I didn't need medication. I didn't need, you know, anything other than like sort of the learned accommodations that I had like taught myself over the course of my life, like keeping a calendar with me instead of leaving it at home and on a wall, because I'm never going to remember what I'm doing next Thursday. If someone asks me if I'm available, like I have to have it with me. So then I meet my husband. He says he has ADHD. And I'm like, we should totally have kids, <laughs> like a bunch of them. <laughs> this will be really fun. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I don't know how many folks who have been on this have said this, but like, we're not always great at birth control, <laughs> the ADHD folks. Because, like, impulsivity is, like, a thing, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. I don't know if we've actually talked about that. That was certainly an issue with me in my younger days. Two of my kids were not planned because 
I was non-compliant with my birth control, basically. Well, and not, I mean, even when you're on something that's like the pill, we all forget to take it, too. So there were so many times where I would be like, I'm three days behind. Maybe I'll just pop all three at the same time because I'm an idiot. Like, you know, those moments, right? Where you're like, nobody needs to know. Absolutely. Like, it's fine. I can totally <laughs> know. That's not how that works. <laughs> you did not read the label. At that point, you know, I still, I still had the narrative that I was, that I had outgrown it, that like, it was about being in school. Right. And it was all about academic success. And that was when it got in the way. And that was the only way that it got in the way for me. After my first kid, I had anxiety, depression, and OCD that was untreated in, in long story short, too late. But the version of that, that I think is like important to note is anyone in the perinatal period can come up with reasons for why they feel the way they feel. Like I have a new baby. The birth was harder than I expected. Not what I pictured. Breastfeeding was hard. There are so many moving parts to adjusting to having an infant in your house that if you want to tell yourself a story, I should say, about why you feel anxious or depressed or why you have, for, for me, my OCD was always about like catastrophic thinking and sort of thinking over and over through negative things that weren't likely to happen at all. But I didn't embrace the reality that I was anxious or depressed or had OCD until the second kid was born. And I still felt the same way. And so at that point, I went to my midwives, I got on medication, I went, started seeing a therapist, I started like doing the work that I needed to do to sort of like be a good mom. They tend to prescribe Zoloft because it's like the most tested. It's tested on the most age groups. Um, it's safe in kids, it's safe for breastfeeding, and they haven't tested some of the other SSRIs. So they that was the only option. At one point, I essentially needed to graduate from seeing my midwives because they were like, if the medication that you're on isn't solving how you feel, then we're sending you to our specialist. I'm like, okay. So I get in there and I'm ready to talk about the fact that like, maybe I need different medication. Maybe, you know, like, cause at that point I was no longer depressed. I was anxious and prone to overwhelm. Like I would get rage angry over normal things that babies and toddlers do that in hindsight was so obviously because it had taken me all of my mental and emotional energy to self-motivate, to do a task. And I was trying to focus on completing that task. And when their attention or when they drew my attention away from completing that task, the frustration came out as rage, which makes perfect sense to today me, but then me thought I was a monster. Yeah, I've often talked about the fact that I, I felt like a lot of my postpartum depression, because I was I was same diagnosed with postpartum depression and anxiety. The catastrophic thinking was I only have two kids, but it was so much worse with my second. And so it's I feel like is that a regular experience or is that a typical? Because I feel like I just knew so much more about all the things that could go wrong with kids, whereas I felt so naive with my first one. And so it was so much worse with my second. You know, I've often felt like the depression side wasn't necessarily what was being asked of me when I would go to the doctor's office uh, in terms of like, you know, thoughts of of being unalive or, you know, unaliving my children. But it was the it was the what is wrong with me feeling right that question that so many of us had, which is like, why am I in a rage all the time? Why is everybody? Why is my husband walking around on eggshells? Right? Like that question of like, why am I behaving the way I'm behaving? It, it feels like I'm out of control. And that's where I think the depression came from. I agree. I agree. And I think in my non clinical observation, it seems like women and birthing people who have ADHD, who add one kid to the mix, there's an adjustment period. 
And then you add a second kid to the mix and all you're doing is adding a second set of needs that you're trying to navigate in addition to your own, which let's face it, for those of us with ADHD is already very hard to do. Like, am I remembering to eat? Am I remembering to drink water? Did I remember to exercise? All of that is just really, really, really hard when it's just you and your brain, let alone the needs of any additional humans in your house. That's my theory. Now you have three kids too, right? So, so then, okay, so let's keep going. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So after the third one, my midwives were like, you need more help than we can provide you. We're sending you somewhere. We're going to send you to our person. And our person is still my person to this day. She is lovely. She manages uh, kids and adolescents with ADHD and women in the perinatal period. And I'm like, can we talk more about that? (laughs) How much overlap is there? So I walk into the appointment and I'm like ready to talk about the things that I am feeling overwhelmed about, like the things that I'm struggling to stay ahead of in my life. And I'm like, I don't know, five, 10 minutes in. And I've already jumped subjects like three, four, five times. Like I'm like all over the place. And she's like, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD? And it was like record scratch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I was eight, I I outgrew it. And she's like, that's not a thing. Well, I I totally understand that idea where you're like, no, that's a school thing, right? Like, why would this relate to my relationship with my spouse or my children or any of that stuff, right? It's not in the DSM. It's not nobody talks about it. So right. No. Because how do you measure your relationship to your spouse? Like, that's what the DSM is telling us, right? Like, it's like saying how how pervasive it is in getting in the way of academics or whatever. And it's like, it gets in the way socially. I cannot stress that enough. Like, whenever I'm talking to friends who are like, should I take my kid? Yes, do it. Because if they're not struggling academically because they're gifted, they're probably struggling socially. Yeah. Oh, such a good point, right? You think about the self-talk. I mean, that's what we all are hugely affected by in our in adulthood. It's that it's the self-concept that comes from all of this sort of confusion and frustration. It's not like I think I have an attention deficit. Like we I, I don't what does that even mean, right? Especially when it's like coming to to understanding your relationship with your children or sensory stuff. Yeah, exactly. So she suggested uh, that this could all be ADHD related record scratch. <laughs> and she's like, right. She's like, we can treat your anxiety and your rage and your overwhelm. But if we aren't also treating your ADHD. And I was like, OK. So we w- I went back on Adderall. Per my college experience, I knew that it worked well. And she's like, they have this thing called extended release now. And I was like, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, my life has changed. Like, it was amazing. Um, So the realization that I have daily now is if I wake up and I'm anxious and I take my ADD meds, I'm not anxious. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. My anxiety is how I mask my difficulty staying on top of tasks, remembering what I have to do each day. Because it's like the back of my mind is going, you're going to forget something. You're going to forget something. Yeah, probably because I have ADHD. But if I take my meds, I don't, I don't forget things the way that I do. That is so important. I feel like I wish doctors and even therapists could make that connection because a lot of the time, like Xanax doesn't, I don't know about like, I don't know if you've ever tried it. It doesn't do anything. No. Right. So it's like, there's, it's coming down to like looking at the connections between the why, right. The why we're behaving this way, which is something you have on this podcast, which is like, 
you know, looking at, you know, the fact that we use anxiety, anxiety becomes very useful for us in terms of motivating us to do things. And so it's not necessarily this thing that just exists that we caught like the flu. It's something that we have developed or has that has developed as a result of all of these coping mechanisms that we've had. Yeah. Oh, so well said. And your kids are really close together too, right? Exactly. Yeah, I was on the new every two plan, like cell phones. <laughs> oh my God, I've never heard that before. I love it. And how old are they now? Okay, uh, 15. Is your oldest? 13 and 11. So I now don't have any elementary schoolers. This will be my first year without anyone in elementary school. And they all get on the early bus now? That's That was like the life-changing. When everybody left my house at 7 a.m., it was such a life-changing. It was so great. <laughs> It's like I could like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, just like stand at the top of the hill and sing. I'm tone deaf, (laughs) but I would sing anyway. You know, like being able to start my day that early is tremendous. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So my kids are almost five years apart. They're four and a half years apart. And I remember like friends of mine when my oldest was like, a year, 18 months, all were starting again for their second one. And my husband and I were like, no, absolutely not. We could not possibly bring a baby into this chaotic situation. <laughs> we were like, no. And then when we were ready to try, because we sort of had arbitrarily decided four years was a good time to have our kids apart. Isn't that funny? We all do that, though. Right? Well, my brother and I were four years apart, so it was like, that's what I knew, right? It's like folding <laughs> socks. You do exactly what your parents did because that's all you know. Um, but that was the, but that was really the first time where we felt like we could even try to have another baby because I struggled so much the first time around. We both did. But then we looked at my daughter who was like potty trained and, uh, you know, sitting quietly on a on a Sunday morning while we read the newspaper. And then we were like, no, we can't bring a baby into this situation. It's too good now. We like missed our window. <laughs> so I get I get why parents want to just kind of like rip the bandaid off and get it all done. And, and, you know, while just be in the crazy while you're in the crazy. But how do you even like decide like it just feels like there's so much chaos right there's like there's you're pregnant so you're going through all the pregnancy stuff but you still have this baby waking you up all the time and i mean the exhaustion all of that anyway i guess my question was can you like discern for yourself what was adhd in terms of pregnancy versus postpartum right because perinatal is really the whole shebang right it's from the moment of conception until what like a year officially at postpartum a year or two postpartum. So there, there are folks who get diagnosed at, when their kid is 18 months old. And they're like, I'm really depressed. I'm really anxious. I'm insert symptoms here. And it's like, if you don't resolve it, it's going to stick around, right? Well, if, if anything, I feel like that's the moment where, because I was diagnosed when my daughter was 18 months, because I had gotten to that point where I'm like, okay, I'm sleeping better. Things are still not better, right? Like, there's always that wait and see feeling where you're like, right? My youngest was 18 months old. Yes. Yeah. And so there's that wait and see where it's like, things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. Everybody says things are going to get better. And it's like something happens at 18 months where you're like, yeah, things have not gotten better. So therefore I need help. Uh, So I imagine a lot of women wait a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And also, like, if someone is breastfeeding or chest feeding, right, they've got like, I have to be really careful about what I'm eating, what I'm putting in my body, like what medications am I taking? Is it being passed to the baby? Like there are so many things that even I think even if someone had said to me, hey, your ADHD is part of what's happening right now. And if you can get that under control, this whole parenting, the babies and toddlers is going to be way easier. I don't know that I would have been open to taking medication because... I didn't, I didn't know what the consequences would be to the kids. 
I totally, I had the, a lot of my anxiety was wrapped around medication as well. I did not even, even Zoloft, which has been studied tremendously, like you said, I did not want to nurse and take SSRIs at the same time. And so that was, cause that was my anxiety, which was like, I will never forgive myself if a study comes out in 30 years that, you know, all of that stuff. And so, uh, I was, so, but I, so, you know, I think we're very prone to that, like wanting to do everything as perfectly as possible so that we're not blamed somehow. <laughs> we learned that perfection masking our ADD as a kid. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And so if we have to do things perfect, we have kids, which we are told is like, then you've arrived. You've arrived as an adult. Like this is your purpose in life, right? Like you are now finding greater meaning. You're connected to everything. It all makes sense now. None of it makes sense. Like it's not, it's, it's not easier. Like having kids didn't provide answers. It didn't make me more patient. It didn't make me calmer. It just made who I was like more people were in the house with me (laughs) while I was still (laughs) not patient, not medicated, not reflecting on what I really needed. Yeah. One of the things I feel like must be very common amongst women with ADHD, neurodivergent mothers who are undiagnosed, is that feeling of like, Things didn't go according to plan, right? The perfectionism. So it's like, I ha- I really, really struggled with like the fact that I had an epidural with my first baby because I had this birth plan, right? And so I felt like I had cheated somehow. Like, And I would tell people this. I would tell people about the amount of like issues and struggle I would have letting go of my birth plan gone awry. And, you know, there were so many people, right, who were like, it's fine, whatever, you have your baby at the end. And I was like, I see that in theory. Why can't I let go of the fact that I had this? And I'm and I still like to this day, I'm like, I can't really put my finger on like why it was so important. Okay, for your second, did you not need the epidural? I didn't need it. He came he came like sliding out of me so quickly that I didn't need it. But at that point, at least I had. I was okay with the epidural because I had had it and I was, I had a really good experience with it. So I was like, I felt like the person at the back of the class is like, I would always tell new moms be like, just get the epidural. (laughs) It's totally fine. Uh, It's not a big deal. Don't put all this pressure on yourself to have a natural birth. My first one was a C-section unplanned. And and so there, like I had a lot of guilt, exactly like what you're saying, trauma, guilt, the whole thing. Second one, V back with an epidural. I was like, oh, so close to doing it right. <laughs> doing it right. What does that even mean? That is the, that is just absurd. But man, that narrative was really strong. Third one, no medication. I didn't have time. Turns turns out it didn't ma- it didn't make me again. I was waiting for something to make me more patient, more uh, less less ADHD. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and no birth experience, no unfussy baby, no what like none of that is going to create a different me. Yeah. Oh my god. So God, I'm like getting I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about how that feeling of like if I do everything right then somehow I won't be the one who's blamed at the end, right? Yes. Uh, or I will be, I won't be culpable for anything that goes wrong. And I'm like, now looking at that idea and that motherhood thought and philosophy is so clearly ADHD, right? It's so clearly this product of the way in which we are spoken to and then internalize this idea that like, I've missed something, right? Or, oh, I have to like, Double, triple, quadruple check everything. And do you think that's why we like obsessively research parenthood? Because I feel like that was, I don't know about you, but I read every single book I could possibly read. And and it was very frustrated that my husband was like, eh, we'll be fine. Right. He was like, so didn't care. And I was like, no, we have to be perfect at this. Yeah. Parenting is a game and I am going to win it. I don't know who I'm playing against. I, I have no idea but I'm going to win at it. The amount of harm I did to myself 
talking that way about what I should have been capable of or expect of myself. In hindsight, dear earlier Emily, I am sorry. Today me knows now that that was not very nice. I did not need to do that to myself. Uh, you're, I'm getting emotional. I'm getting so emotional. I feel like I want to write that woman a letter, right? I do. Uh, when we talk about the grief of a diagnosis, and I really, really just want to give that version of myself a hug because it was so hard. And I really never felt like, like everybody's like, yeah, motherhood's hard, right? But I was like, this feels really like a lot. <laughs> really a lot really really yeah yeah because it's tied into your whole being oh my goodness Emily you're making me cry too early in the day (laughs) sorry I in prep for this interview was talking to a friend and cried on the phone so I got my I got mine out like just right before (laughs) we started (laughs) and I am not a crier I know. Well, I always joke about because I'm on an SSRI. So I'm like, I I don't cry on an SSRI. I'm dead inside. <laughs> so when I do cry, you know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you about the climb out of the darkness. So you went to one, right? You went to an event as a mother? Yeah. Okay. So I became a parent during the mommy blogging boom. Everyone everyone had a mommy blog. I had one. The people I would meet at mom's group had them. No one had any followers. We were j- literally just following each other. And But it was also Facebook. I feel like our generation was like the parent, the Facebook parents too. Yeah, it was, I feel like it was very wonderful, but also some, a lot, I felt like it fed a lot of our, am I normal anxiety in a way that maybe it wouldn't, wasn't so healthy, but anyway. <laughs> I agree. I agree. The one thing about blogging that was really good for me was I was doing a lot of like self-reflecting every day in real time. And I wasn't pulling any punches in terms of like the parts of parenthood that I did not like or that were hard. I I never really liked being pregnant. It was it was easy enough. Like I was fortunate to have easy pregnancies, but I didn't like the feeling of being pregnant. It was uncomfortable, which is, I think, a neurodivergent thing too, for sure. Oh, yeah. I will say one of the things I liked about being pregnant was the permission to like be fat and eat whatever I wanted because I had such a disordered relationship with food in my body. That was the only thing I liked about it. Yeah. Like you're telling me my ADHD binge eating is now allowed. (laughs) Great. I'm going to double down on that. (laughs) (laughs) Like for sure. For sure. Okay, so we were talking about what led up to you attending your first climb out of the darkness. Ah, yeah. Okay. So I'm blogging, other people are blogging. I'm following a blogger who's kind of big in the blog sphere. And she's talking about how she just got diagnosed with postpartum anxiety. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Hyper focus, buckle up. We're going to just research the crap out of this. So in the course of reading about postpartum anxiety, which resonated a lot with me, I found this Climb Out of the Darkness event that was happening like in in several places, but it was its first year. It was like a brand new baby fundraiser awareness raising thing. And I just, I put all three of my kids in the car and I drove, like I live outside of Baltimore. I drove down into Baltimore I had never been there before and I have anxiety about like following directions and I had to like print them on MapQuest, you know, because that's when this was (laughs) I'm like, am I going to get there? I don't know. Like I had the roadmap like opened up and like, I mean, it was, you know, this was like 11 years ago and I was a Luddite when it came to like adopting technology because I was cheap. So (laughs) and like three kids in car seats in the back seat too, right? Right. Right. Three kids in car seats, me with like printed out directions. I'm driving. I get there. I don't know anyone. I'm an extrovert. So I'm going to lean in on just meeting people when I get there, which was fine. I wasn't necessarily like anxious about that. But I was like, what are we going to talk about? Like, is everyone that's there going to be like, I'm depressed. I don't like my baby. I don't know. Breadth of experience, like, 
when I say it felt like coming home, it really did. Like people were like, parenting is hard. Some people were like, I'm very anxious about specific things. Like I'm carrying the baby. I'm, you know, what if, what if I drop the baby? What if I trip? Like things that you worry about, we were worrying about them out loud and not, and not keeping quiet anymore. I was like, this is my life now. I do this. When you wrote to me and said that you had attended a Climb Out of the Darkness event and now you're the director, I was like, that feels very ADHD, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I attended and then I attended the next year and then I co-led the like Baltimore Climb event for two years with a dear friend. Hi, Carrie. And then... I sent an email to the head of the organization and I was like, I have some ideas about like increasing sort of like equity across, like, cause as someone who lives in the Northeast for both of us, fundraising looks different here than it looks if you go, I don't know, 50 miles West in either of our States, right? Like if you get to a smaller town, if you get to a, a place where like, the businesses are mom and pop businesses, like all of that looks different. And I was watching people who I had become really close to lead events in other parts of the country. And I was like, I want them to feel the success that I feel because what they're doing is successful. They're raising awareness. They're, you know, telling local businesses, local mom groups, local libraries, whatever, about this event and about the resources and all of that. But like, they're not feeling the success that I'm feeling because we're we're only measuring it based on dollars raised. We need to measure it based on different things. So I send this email to the person who's running the climb and she's like, would you like a job? And I was like, well, I just won the lottery. This is amazing. Wow. And so I've been running the program since 2017, which for an adult with ADHD is a really long time to work in the same job because I was a job jumper before that. Like I would do something and do it really, really well for like a year or two and then would would need, like I would feel the wanderlust and need to like do something different. And I do not feel that at all in this job because it's like, it's new and it's different. And at first it was, I was, you know, the person who was running the fundraisers for this organization. And then I was like, we should really start a podcast. (laughs) And so because I say things out loud, I, I blurt my ideas they just come out and sometimes they land and people are like, yeah, you should do that. And so ADHD is, is my superpower now. Like I don't, I don't feel like any part of it really is a problem. It's more like what else is happening for me in my day that this is showing up as a problem. It's not that the ADHD which is inherently a part of who I am is the problem. It's like, what else overwhelmed you today? Did you not drink enough water? Did you move your body? I no longer blame myself for the things. And I get to be creative and I get to help people and uh, like won the lottery. I just, I sent an email. I had some ideas I won the lottery and now I work, I work for postpartum support international and I get to, I get to talk to people and hear their stories and hold space for them and help them make differences in their community. And it's so cool. (laughs) I hear you. I mean, I, and I think the thing with the podcast too, is like when I started this podcast, it was so selfish. It was really like, I want to meet other women who maybe went through the same experience as me, right? 
and and know that I'm not alone. But it was so cathartic to meet new women and to have these conversations. And it was so much for me. And so then I would turn around and be like, oh, other women are benefiting from also from hearing like it was such this win-win situation. I really felt like, oh, my God, this is amazing because there's so much healing involved in telling your story. And there's so much healing involved in listening to the other person's story. Like it's so symbiotic in all the right ways. But really, when it comes to like reducing stigma and and getting to that place that you're talking about, that I am not the issue here. I am amazing. I am phenomenal. I am eccentric. Yes. Yes. It's just a matter of like, what is in my environment right now that is that is leading me to struggle or or be caught, you know, stuck or whatever. But like that level of self-acceptance that none of us experience, you know, usually before this diagnosis or in your case, over and over and over again. Like, you know, I talked to women who were diagnosed in childhood and still experience this right because of how we're spoken to or the expectations or the country we're living, like all of those things, how we're socialized, all of that. But, you know, this idea that like talking about and sharing our stories is so healing in terms of reducing that, that stigma that we've been left with. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've created this community, right? Like where it's parasocial. We don't, we don't all know you in real life. We aren't having coffee with you, but we do have this sense that like, that you get us. Mm -hmm. That feel, that feeling, like you said, like I'm home, right? That finding our people. Yeah. Yes. Feeling like you're part of a community is so important. And maybe again, this is, you know, how women are socialized, but I think that women thrive in community. It's like magical. You're giving me all the feels today. I'm like, sorry. (laughs) Uh, It is. It is so magical. And one of the things I love interviewing experts, you know, it's great. I love learning about ADHD. But for me, the magic is when somebody listens to this podcast, and then they turn around and say, it's time for me to share my story. Because these women's stories have helped me so much. I I want to share my experience so that I can help other women, but also realizing that sharing your experience is that is in itself is so healing. Oh, God. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like every every episode of your pod that I've listened to so far, even even if the subject title sounds like it might not really relate, I'm like sitting there like, yes, every time at there. And it's not just one or two little gems like there's plenty to take away because that's what community does. Like it allows us to see how much more we have in common than we might think at face value. Yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Okay. <laughs> Deep breath. I know, right? I really, well, I, I want to ask you about your kids too, um, but I'm also like still processing all of this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, this is really, this is really good. I'm really grateful for to be having this conversation with you. I feel like you really have a gift for articulating these experiences. So thank you. So how many of your kids have been diagnosed? What was that situation like with you going back? Because a lot of the time I talk about like how for me, my kids were diagnosed after me. And so my parenting changed drastically after my diagnosis when I saw in them how I was perpetuating a lot of that negativity around their behaviors. And so it's, I'm so grateful. Like the sitting still or the, yeah, behave, right? Be a good kid, do all the things. Uh, And so I'm so grateful that my awareness has helped me as a parent. Um, And so I'm, but I'm curious, like, what was your journey with your three kids? Basically, like once each of them entered third grade, so eight years old. Third grade, yeah. (laughs) That's where... There's an expectation of self-control for good or ill that my kids all struggled with. And they each struggled in different ways. One of them would get rage frustrated. And I'm like, relatable. I get it. I can help. One of them is like a mirror in terms of hyperactivity, a very sobering mirror 
Like <laughs> this is karmic retribution. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, listen, um, I understand that you really want to like clap or like, like hoot and holler, but I'm overwhelmed when you do it. Where can you do it and how can you do it so that I am not overwhelmed? I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying go outside. <laughs> Please go outside. It's really loud in here right now. And let me think about all of our parents who literally said, like my mom, who was literally like, go outside and don't come back until the street lights turn on. That was what she used to say to us at the summer in summer. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And you're like, okay. And then and then, you know, we went out and, and got into all kinds of cool shenanigans. Played with played with sticks and mud and stuff. It was great. <laughs> So my youngest is a girl. My older two are boys. Only one, I think, is a hyperactive type. But the diagnosis was was actually really easy. I went in. I met with the first one. She, like, watched the oldest and within, like, 30 minutes was like, yeah, inattentive, probably. Like, he's he's like he's got whole things happening in his brain that he's not sharing out loud. Second one, sharing everything out loud. Nothing stayed in his brain. By the time we got to the third one, I was like, hey, I think the third one. And she's like, I'll just write you a prescription. It's fine. You're the expert now, right? (laughs) Right. And I mean, you know, the Adderall shortage is frustrating, but you know, we've been able to pivot. Like some of us have switched to other medication options. We don't medicate during the summer because I don't like they don't have anywhere that they need to go or anything that they need to do where a level of self-control is is required. And most of their friends are, if not neurodivergent, have neurodivergent siblings. So it's not like if I send a really hyperactive kid to hang out with his really hyperactive friends that the parents are going to be overwhelmed. It's like a whole new world a little bit than what I had growing up. Like, you know, I wasn't like, I got to, I got to go and be like the, I got to like, try to be chill when I'm at a play date, be, you know, mask myself. They don't, they don't do that. And I'm like, okay, good. Like, it's not, it's not just my kid that's wild and crazy. Like all of your kids are wild and crazy too, which is really validating. Like it's a judgment free thank you. I feel validated situation. So, <laughs> well, and like you said, there's no sense where they have to be other than who they are. Right. And so there's not that like trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. It's really like, yeah, just be your, be your wonderful, wild, eccentric self. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. 
It's called Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So you had also mentioned that your brother was in attentive ADHD. Was he diagnosed in adulthood or was he diagnosed in childhood? He was diagnosed in middle school or high school. Like that was the point at which for him, it started to present and get in the way. So he, he was then taking medication for a, a while in there, but doesn't anymore. Funny story, him and his wife lived with us during part of the pandemic for a hot minute while they were like transitioning from one house to the other. And his wife was like, I didn't realize he had ADD until there were other people in the house. Like it was like he was able to mask it when it was just him, his wife and their first child. And then once they were in the house with us, it was like he just had a much harder time like organizing his thoughts, staying motivated, like all the things that we all struggle with. And I'm like that's that's true for me too. Like the more people that are in a situation, the more other people's needs come in, the harder it is for me to mask. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that's how I ended up diagnosed, right? I was because it was it was the pandemic and my kids and my husband were home and I could not do anything because I knew I was going to be interrupted at some point by somebody. And so, you know, and my kids would come and at lunchtime and be like, we're hungry. And I was like, I just fed you. Like, oh, no, I didn't. Okay, fine. Uh, But like feeling like I was constantly being interrupted by somebody. And I was like, I'm just sitting here in waiting mode all day long, not getting anything done. And that was kind of what tipped the scales. So yeah, but is it mass? It's interesting, because I feel like if you're if your brother was in a situation where he was able to kind of be himself and, and have a structure with his wife and child, I don't know. I feel like that's that's accommodating environment versus a hostile environment like school or workplace where you do mask. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's ways in which if we're kind of in a situation where we are doing well, like our ADHD ebbs and flows. Right. And that's where I get confused about, like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about an ADHD brain, which is something we're born with? And sometimes we're struggling and sometimes we're not based on our environment. Or do we have this wonderful neurodivergent brain and we only seem to have ADHD when we are struggling? Because those are the behaviors that clinicians recognize, right? You know, I feel like it's kind of all of it. But I think some of it, though, is the way that we use the word masking now. Like masking now can mean like hiding autism spectrum disorder traits, right? Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think masking is good or bad. Sometimes it's very useful. Sometimes I choose to do it on purpose. It's more like the energy cost for me, like the energy that it takes to mask is what I would assess as positive or negative. Like if it, if it's not, if the juice isn't worth the squeeze, you know, if it's too hard to do, then I'm either going to be depleted early in the day or I'm going to not be able to keep the mask on when I want it on. The mask isn't the enemy. It's the energy that it takes that can be the problem. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And I think it's why recognizing that cycle of energy and exhaustion um once you know what's happening and why, then you're not asking the question, what's wrong with me, right? You're not saying, oh my goodness, I'm suddenly in a rage and yelling at my kids. You're saying, no, these are the signposts that led to this, right? The TV was on. I haven't slept. I, you know, all of the things, there's too many people in the house, all of those things that lead to the inexplicable rage. You can now see why I always talk about it. Like it's like, there's, you know, notes in the margin or highway signs or whatever, like that idea that there are a lot of, you can, you can recognize those factors before you reach fever pitch. Yeah. Right. Oh my goodness, Emily. Woo. Thank you. This was amazing. Uh, Now 
I want to ask you about uh, if if you could rename ADHD to something else, uh, what would you call it? Do you have a something else you might call it? Or you do you like that name? I think for me, it's so much more about executive function than it is attention or inattention. And it's also about energy. Like how much energy do I have? How much, how much is it going to take to do something? Yeah. It's like executive and energy for me. And, and, you know, again, I don't think it's a disorder. Right. So that's, that's a tricky one too. Right. I think we get, we get a lot of like, do we call it a syndrome or, um, or just call it, you know, some people are like, yeah, we just call it sparkly brain eccentric. I'm an eccentric. That's maybe that's what I would call it if I could call it something else. I'm like, it's really just all of us having our embracing our eccentricities. I would think that when we were living in like villages and huts, that we were probably the people who were like on on guard duty from saber tooth tigers. Yeah, of course, right? The the hunters. Because we like whatever is happening in the periphery, like we always have this ability to be pulled towards it so like hello village protector you're welcome i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i like that (laughs) wonderful okay so the podcast is fairly new right you just started it earlier this year the podcast is new our first episodes aired in i want to say february we dreamed of the podcasts a year before that and my coworkers who are not neurospicy in the way that I am, they were like, let's make a whole plan before we, and I'm like, really? Like, let's just buy microphones and start recording things. And they're like, mm, hear me out. <laughs> so it took us a while to like get it launched. And now we finished our first season. Our second season is starting probably in a couple of weeks. We tell the stories of pregnant and postpartum people who have had some sort of diagnosis or or not diagnosis. A lot of the people we talked to were never formally diagnosed, at least not in real time with anything that they were suffering from, but anything from psychosis to birth trauma to we talked to the spouses of folks who have had postpartum depression or anxiety because there's power in storytelling. Um, and, you know, it's it's a very common occurrence, like one in five women within the first 12 months will experience like a mental health complication. And that can be anything from anxiety, which is common, to psychosis, which is less common. They are the unicorns. Each one is unique. So we tell people stories and we talk about like the through line, the way that you do, like what led to the diagnosis or what led to realizing you needed help. And then like, what did the help look like? And what, what does now look like? And they all want to pay it back. Like, pay, you know, cause we can't go back in time and change our own history, but we can like reach reach back to the people that are in there now and be like, come on, there's, there is a way forward. You're going to be okay. Right. I always, yeah, I felt like that, you know, why so many of us turn to advocacy is that idea of like, if I could save one woman from going through what I went through, it'll all be worth it. You reminded me when I went, when my daughter was 18 months and I finally went to my doctor and I sat in my, you know, sat in the, on the little bed waiting for her to get there. Um, and as soon as she walked into the appointment, I burst into tears and I was like, I need help. And I remember her saying to me, the only thing you're going to regret about taking an antidepressant is that you didn't come here a year ago, right? Or didn't come here sooner. And I always thought about that too, which was like, God, why did it take so long for me to get to here, right? Oh, God, I'm like so, I'm so emotional. But like that same reel of like, God, if only I could have helped somebody connect the dots sooner, right? And and really feel, get that feeling of like, God, you really reach out at the minute you think you need help. Why do we wait until we are at our absolute wit's end? Because we all do that thing that you said where we go, well, if we wait until like the, they'll be sleeping more or they'll be, you know, there, there are, there's always 
any number of reasons that things are hard. And it's like, maybe things are just hard and they don't have to be. Like, what? hear me out. What if we deserved more? And then we went and got it. Absolutely. Uh, All right. I, I want to be, I feel like I could talk to you for three more hours, Emily, <laughs> but I really, um, I, I want me to, <laughs> I'm so grateful to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights. Um, how can people find you online? And um, let's say a little bit more about climb out of the darkness and PSI and how, if somebody is, has a newborn and she's listening to this podcast and struggling, what should she do? Okay. If you have a newborn and are struggling, go to postpartum.net. That's PSI's website. There are plenty of different ways that you can get access to people that can help. You can text, you can call, you can send like a message just through the website and people will like reach out to you. There's also a national maternal mental health hotline. I will make sure that I get you that number. I don't have it memorized so that you can put it into the show notes. I think it's on the website, but yes, I will put it in the show notes. That's a good idea. And that's like live human voice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they do texting. So if you don't want to say it out loud, but you can type it, uh, you can you can text instead. The people on that hotline and the people on PSI's helpline both are like warm, fuzzy, most people with lived experience who know that you're actually pretty normal, even though you might be feeling like you're a monster and you're not normal. You are normal right now. So yeah, go to PSI's website. If you want to learn more about the climb, um, PSI Climb Out is our social media handle on all the, uh, we're on all the things. We're not on TikTok because I don't have capacity for that. (laughs) (laughs) And I am setting a healthy boundary. Um, And then the I Am One podcast is, I'm looking, it's I Am One podcast on on all social media. Yeah. And I'll put a link to it, to the actual podcast too, in the show notes. It's fantastic. You and your co-host, Danny, are are wonderful and um, it's such a great resource. She is like the, the yin to my brain's yang. And I think like all of us neurodivergent folks really need to have like co-workers and friends and family members that like provide that balance. Like I was the one that was like, let's launch the podcast tomorrow. And she was like, how about we have a plan? (laughs) Which I think is why we, we work so well together. (laughs) No, I always joke. I always joke that I actually launched this podcast before I was officially diagnosed because I could not. And, and there was this part of me that was like, Oh crap. What if I'm, what if I'm not ADHD? And now I look back and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> just that alone is so clearly the signs were there all along. But like, just that doubt of like, oh no, what have I done if I accidentally started this podcast and it turns out I don't have it? I'm like, that is the most ADHD thing possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Emily, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And it's been such a thrill to meet you and, and hear your story. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. It's so important to tell these stories. And I think you're doing a lot for a lot of us. So thank you. Aww, thank you. Thanks for making me cry so much today. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. Right. I don't know. <laughs> There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. 
I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself.